0: Hello, this is Ken Stusen. I'm a partner at Brown Advisory. Welcome again to the NOW podcast. NOW stands for Navigating Our World. Through these discussions, we try to better understand the world around us, to navigate some of the most pressing questions that are shaping our lives, our culture, and our investment challenges. As we look to the future, whether we agree or disagree with each other, the one thing we know for sure is that none of us can figure this out on our own. At Brown Advisory, we are focused on raising the future and we hope these now conversations will help us do just that.
1: The energy transition is one of the great investment themes and investment opportunities of our time. As we think about how to position our clients' portfolios for long-term growth, we believe understanding all aspects of the transition is imperative, and nuclear energy could play a key role in that transition. Nuclear power has had a controversial history, but today it is often considered an essential part of the energy mix as we move to a lower carbon future. Today's Advanced Small Modular Reactors, or SMRs, offer nuclear power with substantially lower capital investment, smaller footprints, efficient manufacturing, and enhanced safety compared with traditional nuclear reactors. I'm Erica Pagel. I'm the Chief Investment Officer for Sustainable Investing and a Portfolio Manager at Brown Advisory. As we examine the move to a lower carbon economy during this NOW series on the energy transition, We want to understand different opportunities and perspectives across the energy landscape. So we reached out to Joe Dominguez, the CEO of Constellation, to discuss the opportunities around new nuclear. Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Joe is an ideal person to learn from. Constellation is the leading operator of nuclear power plants in the United States as well as one of the largest producers of all types of renewable energy across the U.S. As you'll hear, Joe is quite frank about the opportunities and challenges that we face around the move to a sustainable energy future. I learned a lot from my conversation with Joe, and hope he will too.
2: It's good to use a book as a metaphor, and if you want it to have a happy ending, I think the happy ending is broadly speaking, all sectors of the economy get to near net zero around 2050. And that happens really around the globe. And I think that's what we need to do to be successful. Again, continuing with the metaphor, I think we're probably in the first couple chapters here.
1: How do you think that traditional energy companies are reacting to the energy transition?
2: I think the positive is over the last, call it five years, we're starting to see really strong buy-in from the major players. People have been talking about it for a while, but in terms of incorporating clean energy and sustainability into their goals, certainly we've seen a strengthening of that over the last five years. The flip side is I think people are still looking at it mostly from the business perspective. That is, hey, how do I make money in the energy transition and create products and services that – support the transition, as opposed to a more planful, how do we make this all work together and, and achieve reliability and affordability and, and increasingly a sense of geopolitical security and energy.
1: Joe, what do you believe are the biggest risks and opportunities with energy transition today?
2: I think the IRA presents a great business opportunity for investment.
1: The IRA, or the Inflation Reduction Act, is federal legislation passed in 2022 that aims to catalyze investments in clean energy generation, electrification, R&D, and commercialization of technologies for carbon capture, energy storage, and clean hydrogen, among its other provisions related to carbon emissions and health care.
2: I think the risk is that it's not just about dollars, it's not just about capital, and that's that's effectively what the IRA creates. I think there there continue to be real structural issues. Deep decarbonization in sectors outside of electricity will be very hard to achieve, and, and we've really seen progress stagnate in in industrial areas, in agriculture, and a lot of other areas where we need to make meaningful gains. At the same time, we've gotten a great foothold in the electric sector. But the real risks are around the ability to move energy around and have energy when our customers use it. And I continue to see a real disconnect between the introduction of resources that are oftentimes by definition intermittent or not predictable and the fundamental engineering need of the grid to have energy when our customers use it.
1: What is your outlook and what progress do you envision will be made in the next five years?
2: What I fear is that the next five years will be plagued by some of the same challenges around siting and getting energy moved around the system transmission. What I'm hopeful for is that we will begin to figure out how to use abundant amounts of energy at different times of the year to create energy-related products and product offerings, hopefully around the use of clean hydrogen. That will help to ameliorate some of the transmission issues. So, for example, we have parts of this country where already at what I would say, again, is the early chapters of the energy transition, already we're facing huge surpluses of energy during certain times of the day, but more importantly, during seasonal times. The day overload of energy, for for example, in solar in the southwest are things that I think we could address with battery storage and other similar technologies. The amount of seasonal overproduction in the shoulder months in the Midwest as a result of the you know increase of wind energy in those regions are going to be harder. You're not going to be able to store that energy in a battery and save it from April, for example, to July and August. So we've got to figure out a way to move that energy around, not through transmission, but really by creating chemical storage and hydrogen or other opportunities. If we do that right, we're going to create new economies, and new economies in areas of the country that desperately need the jobs and the economic activity.
1: What inning do you think we're in as far as energy transition?
2: I think we're in the the first inning or the second inning. You know, the the, the great things that have been done in these early innings are starting to get kind of an international strength of the coalition, supporting climate. You see that politically episodic in different countries like the US and other places, but it's hard to argue with the notion that we've made great progress as a world beginning to understand the challenge in front of us. But in terms of actually implementing I mean, we we are in a very early stages. And unfortunately, that means that the work we've done in these early innings is the easiest of the work that needs to be done.
1: Let's turn to Constellation specifically. In February 2022, Exelon, the largest utility company in the U.S., spun off Constellation, its power generation business. Today, Constellation generates power across the U.S. and Canada primarily through nuclear, wind, solar, natural gas, and hydroelectric assets. Joe, maybe to level set, can you share what does Constellation do?
2: We produce a lot of energy and a lot of zero emission energy. So overall, we're the third largest electric energy producer in the nation. And we're the largest producer of zero emission or zero carbon megawatts by a very wide margin we're almost uh, the size of our next two largest competitors and the size of the amount of energy we produce that's zero carbon and I would say Erica that even more importantly we produce a form of energy that is dispatchable we know when it's going to operate and operates reliably and resiliently through all times of the year
1: It would be great if you could give us a brief primer on how nuclear power actually works. Help us understand some of the basic concepts. For example, what is the difference between fission and fusion?
2: Well, the technical difference is fission is splitting an atom fusion is putting uh, atoms together. The practical differences are, are fairly significant. What we do presently is we use very lowly enriched uranium. We split the atom, we create a lot of heat, we boil water with that, uh, through that process, and then we turn a steam turbine. Fusion is a really different animal. Fusion is, as I said, fusing two different types of isotopes together, and that also releases a great amount of energy. But whereas in our process, 650, 700 degrees is kind of the high end of the temperature of the water that uh, we boil... In fusion, you get to temperatures that are 100 million degrees. The issue in fusion is how do you capture something that is unspeakably hot when you can't touch anything? Obviously, that's 100 million degrees with with any material known on Earth. So the issue with fusion is creating this energy, but doing it in a manner that you capture it. And so that's the great challenge of our time right now is Not necessarily how how do you create the amount of energy. I think we've gotten past that significant point where we're creating more energy than is used to create the fusion process. But how do you capture something that's 100 million degrees and do it for something usable?
1: How long does it take to bring nuclear power online versus some of the other energy sources?
2: I think it depends where you're at and what size reactor you're looking to build, but in China, they're bringing new reactors online in about four years. We probably see seven to eight years in other countries. In the U.S., it's been a decade to bring a nuclear reactor on, we, and we've only done that once recently with the Vogel units that the Southern Company has brought on. So it takes, takes quite a long time here in the U.S. Part of that is our workforce and our regulatory processes atrophied supply chain was not really there the way it is in china and other countries and so that could certainly be compressed and i think the as is often the case the first of a kind at vogel doesn't represent the the efficiency that we could achieve but size matters here and kind of in a in a different way than we've thought about it before we usually think of the bigger things are the more synergies we could create in the manufacturing process but there's a movement in the nuclear industry to create uh, these things that are uh, called small modular reactors, much smaller than the reactors that we have presently in the fleet. But the idea is that you build most of the equipment in a factory and then you bring it out in modules to to a site and assemble it. And in so doing, significantly cut down the construction lead time. And folks think with that technology, we could get to putting them in in two to three years.
1: So with the small modular reactors, is nuclear energy more scalable and cost effective?
2: Whether it's more cost effective in terms of the dollars per megawatt of production that you ultimately get, I think, remains to be seen. But if we could really shorten the construction time down and create an assembly line for these modular pieces, there's real promise, I think, that we're going to be able to do this very economically. But, but there again, I think I think you just got to be really careful not to overpromise. I think the difference between the first of a kind and the nth efficiency is going to be about five to 10 units before you know just how fast you could, you could actually create these in a factory and get them installed at a site.
1: And how do these small modular reactors fit into Constellation's vision for the future?
2: Right now, we, we have small equity investments in a number of different technologies nuclear and non-nuclear that would fit into the category of providing zero emission energy in a dispatchable very predictable way technologies that we could deploy not only anywhere here in the united states but anywhere in the world so we are working with a number of the companies that are designing these small modular reactors and erica what we end up doing is we trade our practical knowledge of operating plants we trade that expertise sometimes for for an equity position what I would like to see the company do in the first instance is partner with companies that are deploying it where Constellation would come in as the operator at the site.
1: Nuclear energy has been somewhat controversial over the past many years. Can you talk a little bit about those controversies and what changes have you seen um, you know, in the past five to ten years associated with nuclear
2: Erica, you're being diplomatic with the somewhat (laughs) controversial. (laughs) It's been controversial, and we know the reasons why. What we've seen is really a changing of perspective, and we do, like every other industry, a lot of public opinion polling. It's interesting among Democrats where we we traditionally didn't have elemental support. We've seen in the polls an acceptance of somewhere from 38% to 60%, a real rapid movement. I think that's a reflection of the fact that as we look to write the next few chapters in the climate change book, we realize that, A, we're gonna need all the technologies, and in particular technologies that run 24 seven and provide this base load power. From a demographic standpoint where we see uh, a lot of support is in younger generations. So I would say in the, you know, 20 to 40s you see statistically a lot more people accepting of nuclear than you would, you know, in my generation of people that are 50 plus.
1: So maybe we can just dive in a little bit into, into nuclear energy, Joe. You know, I, I know a lot of our listeners are going to be question questioning whether or not we need nuclear energy in order to get to net zero How would you answer that question and and how big is nuclear today and how big does it have to be in order to play a role in, in reducing our carbon environment?
2: We need a resource that could operate anywhere, use relatively small amounts of land, and provide a very predictable and reliable amount of zero emission energy. We know we're going to need to roughly double or triple the total amount of clean energy we have here in the United States over the course of the next 25 years. It certainly could be nuclear. The advantage of nuclear is the technology has been proven. All of these small modular reactor designs that I talked about a moment ago, we know they will work. We're not inventing the technology. It's an iteration of something we've been doing in the industry for 30, 40 years now. Can there be other technologies using, for example, fossil fuel, uh, where we're able to capture all the emissions and sequester them? Yeah, I think that is in the hunt as well. Can we make hydrogen and use that as a chemical carrier for for energy that we would then burn in something that looks like a natural gas-fired machine? Yeah, that could work too. I think the challenges on that are going to be fairly significant in terms of moving the hydrogen around and storing it. When you're not using it but what we absolutely need is a technology that is not intermittent and very dependable and we could cite anywhere
1: it would be great to hear about some of the innovations that constellation is pioneering that you're most excited about for example can you talk about your partnership with microsoft
2: yeah that's that's a great one erica in the early chapters of this transition, we weren't focused on creating clean energy resources that match the times of use for our customers or reliable in the sense that they're operating at the same time frame. What that's meant is that, for example, customers in the southeast of the United States might be buying renewable energy credits that were created in the Midwest part of the country. They're not electrically interconnected and maybe they're not even operating at the same time so you are making the assumption that your factory let's call it in georgia for for just for an example is buying 100% clean energy but you're really not buying 100% clean energy what you're doing is buying recs for the amount of energy you use over the course of a year that are generated somewhere else and at some other time
1: recs are renewable energy certificates a market-based instrument that represents a specified amount of renewable electricity generation.
2: And what that means at the end of the day is that your factory in South Carolina is really going to be surrounded by fossil fuel plants that are producing, or excuse me, in Georgia, are producing the energy. And that's not getting to the environmental benefits that we were looking for. And as a side issue, it's creating more transmission and bottlenecks in other parts of the country. What we need to be able to provide the customers is the assurance that the energy that they're using moment to moment is being produced by clean energy resources that are operating within that geography of the electric grid and are operating at those same times or have storage where you're using energy at roughly the same periods of time. What Microsoft is helping us to do is create the software so that we could demonstrate to customers that their energy use is time and geographically matched to clean energy production. We think that fundamental change in thinking is going to be necessary to maintain the reliability of the grid and make real progress. But it involves a lot of data on, on, in terms of the customer's usage, as well as the availability of these resources. And we needed a partner like Microsoft that could put those data pieces together so that we could offer the product.
1: Joe, let's talk a bit about hydrogen. There's been a lot of discussion and hope that hydrogen could play a significant role in the energy transition. It's the world's most abundant resource. It's cheap, and it can be green when renewable fuels are used in separating hydrogen molecules from water.
2: So we are very excited about making hydrogen with some of our clean energy resources. We received a Department of Energy grant which we used to build an electrolyzer facility up at one of our plants in upstate New York, and we're now producing clean hydrogen with nuclear energy. Again, we're trying to take advantage of these periods of time where the grid has relatively low demand, but we don't want to throw away these megawatts. We want to use them for something productive that could then be used to create other products that could be sold in areas of the economy where deep decarbonization is needed think about sustainable aviation fuels, think about clean fertilizer products with ammonia that is made from clean hydrogen as opposed to natural gas. We're also very excited about a project we just completed at our Hillaby Combined Cycle Plant. Our plant at Hillaby is a natural gas combined cycle plant. What we wanted to demonstrate that is that we were able to burn blends of hydrogen and natural gas and we just demonstrated that we could blend as much as 40% hydrogen in with the natural gas and run the plant very effectively. That's exciting because some of the newly proposed EPA regulations require blending of natural gas and hydrogen as a future compliance mechanism, and we're showing that we could already do it today. And then lastly, I'd point out we have a facility called NetPower where we've demonstrated that we're able to burn natural gas in a pure CO2 environment that emits nothing but CO2 that's ready for pipeline injection into the ground. So we're trying to work all of these areas along with small modular reactors and create that technology I described earlier. Zero emission, predictable power, anywhere.
1: What would it take for hydrogen to be commercially viable?
2: I think from a cost standpoint and a technology standpoint, I think we'll get there. I think the real issue with hydrogen is how do you move it around once you've made it. We need to be thinking about hydrogen pipelines. There's 100,000 kilometers of hydrogen pipelines that have been built in Europe. Here in the United States, we just haven't developed that sort of infrastructure. But it's certainly possible. Once you have that pipeline capability, I think what we're showing is what EPA just proposed is easily achievable. Most of these machines that are already in existence will already burn the blend. And then the input price of hydrogen is gonna be the variable. But if we're allowed to use existing renewable, hydro, and nuclear resources to produce that hydrogen, we'll be able to take advantage of these areas of the country where we have overproduction of clean energy during certain times of the year. And I think we'll be able to build an abundant manufacturing capability in the country, of hydrogen, in, supported by the uh, the tax credits and the IRA. So, I'm very bullish about the ability to create that hydrogen economy.
1: Joe, going back to your earlier comments that we are probably in the first to second uh, inning of energy transition. How long do you think that this technology is going to take? Knowing that the infrastructure is there, but are there regulatory impediments? How long will all of this work that you're doing actually take before it's up and running?
2: I think the hydrogen economy is a 36 to 48 month long process if the treasury rules are supportive of using existing resources. If, by contrast, we have to wait for additional resources to be built and use the electricity only from those additional resources to make hydrogen, I think we're a decade away or better. And I think we have to walk back the blending standards that EPA just proposed in its rulemaking. So I think the key issue is going to be what's in those Treasury regulations. I know Treasury is working through this right now. We would love to see it. Uh, happen sometime this summer, and some folks are projecting that it might happen as early as August. That's real good because we're sitting on billions of dollars of investments, and I know others are too.
1: And maybe if you could describe the treasury um, considerations a little bit more.
2: I think I, I think the treasury considerations are you know interpreting. Uh, What Congress has laid out, Congress was very clear, for example, that you were allowed to use existing nuclear plants to make hydrogen and earn tax credits. It's less clear in the case of existing renewables whether you're going to be able to do the same thing or on grid-connected resources. And, And there are folks out there that would say, look, if we're using resources that are already operating on the grid, then... If we're moving the output of those resources to make hydrogen, then we're going to inevitably have uh, an impact on the level of decarbonization that's on the grid. But of course, the IRA already tackles that by ensuring that the capital is available to build those additional resources. But that, that's the state of the argument, pro and con, and we'll see what Treasury does.
1: Are you starting to see capital deployed from the IRA yet?
2: Yes. But to a limited extent, because there there continues to be these interpretation issues that I think are holding up some of the deployment and the transmission and siting issues continue to plague the industry in terms of getting new resources built and on the grid.
1: Joe, maybe um, taking it back to the corporate level or, or even um, on the service side, What are your climate goals at at Constellation, and how did you go about setting targets that you have? And I know the audience will be interested in learning a little bit more about how you plan to monitor that progress.
2: We started to really think about the difference between net zero and actual zero, and the difference being instead of a net zero world where you you know, you're using RECs and other mechanisms, how do we start incentivizing actual zero where we're time and geographic matching uh, the, the energy production? And so our goal had to move away from net zero to actual zero, meaning that every bit of energy we own and sell will be clean energy that's time matched to the customer needs. And so we were the first company to say, put a stake in the ground and say, net zero is not good enough for us. It's got to be actual zero, and we're going to get there by 2040. We were going to get there 95% of the way by 2030. And we were able to do that because of the size of our nuclear fleet. But given our inherent advantage, the fact that we're the largest firm clean energy provider in the country, we thought we needed to lead the way. The other thing is we needed to begin this conversation with customers who are using sometimes offsets from different parts of the world, or RECs that are created, you know, as I said, different times in different places, then their energy consumption about the difference between net and actual zero, and beginning to provide them with the data necessary for them to understand the environmental benefits of each, and that of course spawned the partnership I mentioned with Microsoft, and really this movement that the federal government led under President Biden to begin the geographic and time match its energy consumption. So those were the focus areas, but in the first instance, we wanted to get reports out to all of our customers. Many of our customers we've built renewables for over the years, so we wanted them to understand what what their actual uh, energy consumption looked like from a time standpoint.
1: Do you think that traditional energy has a role to play in the energy transition?
2: If by that you mean fossil fuels, I think, yes. Um, I think natural gas is going to play a longer role. And and that's frankly why I've approved investments in technologies that would sequester emissions. I presently don't see a path that gets us to the goal line by 2050 that does not make use of fossil fuels. And so direct air capture is going to be a technology that we're going to, we're going to explore we're beginning to do that at one of our Midwest sites again in partnership with the Department of Energy. But the sequestering of the emissions is going to be absolutely needed, or we're going to miss our targets. That's my own personal view.
1: We're starting to hear more and more about carbon capture. Are are you hearing a lot about it in the industry?
2: I am, but Erica, when I, you know, when I mentioned before the difference between small modular reactors, and we understand you know, the whole subset of nuclear issues. But in the case of small modular reactors, we know the technology works. When we're talking about carbon capture or off the tailpipe of an existing gas or coal plant, I think these are technologies where you have to bet on the come in terms of improvements in, in just the practical application of those technologies. Those things are really hard. And I think that's a decade away.
1: How does the political environment impact the transition?
2: You know, I'll give you an example of this. When we launched the company 16 months ago, I made the observation at Constellation ESG isn't a strategy. It is a strategy. In effect, we're a clean energy company. It's all about that. 16 months later, one has to question whether making a bold statement like that, which honestly didn't seem all that bold 16 months ago, but making any statement like that, is going to create some unintended consequences in terms of blowback for being, you know, so-called woke. You know, look, I, I, I think we're all seeing the examples play out in front of us, these different companies that I think arguably intend something very different than the way it's construed. And this highly politicized environment that we're in, I think, unfortunately, is is the swing of the pendulum back. And what it ultimately means is that people are going to be less vocal about the need for this energy transition. It's going to be swept up into a lot of other things, and it's going to be harder to stay the course. With that said, just kind of watching what we've seen in the erosion of the worldwide environment, the need for staying the course is more acute than ever before. So it's just going to be difficult, I think, to message in this space. And to have an honest conversation about what you're trying to achieve and the real important benefits that you're trying to create and not be branded as a company that's just doing this to be woke or to you know to address a particular part of its ownership,
1: Joe, maybe one final question: Do you believe globally we will reach net zero by 2050?
2: I don't, um, and it pains me to say that I think. We will get close, but we need to recognize that instruments like the IRA that have created you know, an incentive to attract capital in the United States are available only really to countries that could afford the level of subsidization and investment that the U.S. is tracking. I think U.S. leadership has to be in terms of developing some of these technologies that will then become affordable and deployable in other parts of the world. And I, I think we're probably gonna fall short of the target. I think that question is an important one, but not the end all. If we're not at 2050 and maybe it's 2060, we know that we'll spend money on resilience that perhaps we otherwise wouldn't spend. But I get frustrated when folks say, well, if we're not gonna get there by 2050, why try? We have to try, we have to save the planet. This isn't a choice, this has to be done. And whether we get there by 50 or 55 or 60 is less important than putting all our efforts into into getting it done.
1: Joe, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. We really appreciate your time and your candor.
0: Thanks, Eric, I appreciate the time. Thank you for joining us as we continue this effort to seek out insights that help us understand our rapidly evolving world. If you enjoyed listening, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast. In our next episode, Erica will continue to explore the transition to a low carbon economy. We hope you'll join us. Until then, be well and stay safe.